But uh, I'm not impressed by your performance. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Welcome along to chapter 26 of What's the Story podcast. My name is Danny Murray, and as usual, oh no, wait, it's not as usual. I've nobody. Just silence. It's going to be a long podcast, just me and my own. So, housekeeping is. Uh, no, I'm only messing with you. Look, it's just me doing the intro. Um, There's a special edition of What's the Story podcast. Um, It's 2016, it's a new year. But it's also the 100th anniversary of the 1916 Easter Rising, which anybody from Ireland will know is, you know, a bit of a big deal. Um, But for anyone who's listening outside of Ireland, the 1916 Easter Rising was uh, like a turning point in Irish history. It was a key moment in terms of Ireland eventually getting to be a free state and then even further down the line getting to be a republic. Um, So... It's kind of fitting that 100 years on, uh, everything over here is about the rising, like, literally. RTE have been talking about it for about three years now, because they'll milk the shit out of anything they can. Go on, the lads. Um, but we decided, look, we'll get in nice and early. We'll get a decent person in to talk about it. Somebody who knows their stuff. And it won't just be me and Graham kind of waffling and throwing in an opinion. And um, Lindsay trying to give out to us about stuff. But um, it's a good one. So our guest this week is historian and author, best-selling author, might I add, Tim Pat Coogan, who has written extensively on all things from Irish history, uh, such as the famine and the H-blocks and the troubles. Um, he's wrote a biography on Michael Collins, Eamon de Valera. He's, he's wrote pretty much anything about Irish history he, he has wrote about. Like he's, he's a fascinating guy with a big old brain on him, and he knows his stuff. So it was really, really cool getting to sit down and talk to him about this because I suppose he he has that link he's old enough as well that he's actually sat down and talked to people who were around at the time of the 1916 rising or family members who were directly connected to you know um, and it's kind of cool to have that tangible asset to have that just that one degree of separation away from all those kind of things I suppose Irish history is one of those subjects that Outside of Ireland, nobody really knows about, but it's actually really interesting, really fascinating, and kind of the more you delve into it, the more you go, what the fuck is this shit? Like, this is just weird. Why, you know, it's crazy, like. um, So, yeah, so it was good to, to sit down and talk to him about it. He, he gave us a lot of information, and it was it was weird in one sense, because we literally asked him one question at the very start, and he just took the ball and ran with it and it was great because myself and Graham literally just sat back and were, were almost in awe of him telling these stories and, and giving us an in-depth analysis like I mean from Daniel O'Connell to Charles Stuart Parnell to World War One, from everything and anything in between up as far as the, you know 1913 lockout um, William Martin Murphy Michael Collins Eamon de Valera obviously Tom Clark um, actually really really good sort of tidbit that comes in later on the podcast. Um, Tim Pat tells a story about uh, Michael Collins and 
Tom Clark, the the first signature on the the Republican Pro- Proclamation of 1916. Tom Clark, his sister, um, and a little interaction she had with Michael Collins, that would essentially play a pivotal part in events further down the line in terms of the War of Independence for Ireland. Um, so it was kind of cool as well to get those little tidbits. But fascinating, fascinating guy. Like, and and as I said, uh, really, really interesting. And his latest book is specifically around the events of the rising and what happened in the aftermath. It's called uh, 1916, The Mornings After. And uh, that's available in all good bookshops and some shitty ones too. Um, but look, it's worth picking up. I I, I got it over to Christmas, uh, read it, enjoyed it. A couple of things you know, I didn't necessarily agree with, but that's like all books, isn't it? You know, that's the beauty of it. It'll make you kind of go, ah, here. Or it's not good if you're just nodding along in agreement with everything. But uh, really, really, really good book. Really fascinating guy. I really enjoyed this one. A um, little bit of self-indulgence for me because I am a history geek. Um, I've done history in college and, and loved it. So, yeah, I was happy with it. Um, but check it out. Uh, let us know what you think, as always. It's coming up next. So, 2016 marks the 100th anniversary of one of the most defining moments of Irish history um, the 1916 Rising at the time the, the entire world seemed to be in conflict you had World War One in its second year you had the Russians building up to their own revolution and Mexico was at war with America but here on our own doorstep uh, the biggest revolution since 1798 was about to kick off in the form of the Easter Rising and our guest this week is probably one of the Best man in the country to talk to about that. He's a historian and a best-selling author. Mr. Tim Pat Coogan, thanks very much for your time and thanks for sitting down with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a very interesting and, as you say, very important topic. Yeah. Um, you Your your latest book, uh, 1916, The Mornings After, has just come out. Um, so I suppose we'll, we'll talk about 1916 and give us a little bit of a, a sort of building up to the rising what were the conditions, what were the, the factors that were leading up to it? Well, the big factor was um, the, the failure to concede home rule constitutionally and peacefully. Uh, it was actually a son, a great grandson of the man, a grandson of the man who coined the phrase, Ulster is right, will fight and Ulster will be right. Randolph Churchill, uh, his... Uh, he was the son of Winston Churchill, and he edited um, a, a book of the history of the father. Well, it wasn't a book, really. It was several volumes. But in the foreword, he, he said uh, that that pity phrase sums up the reason why uh, today six counties of northeastern Ireland are part of the United Kingdom. I mean, it's the sort of thing a provo would say, but this was the son of the great imperialist. And it was he's absolutely right. Um, people don't realise that there were several elections from 1886 onward when Gladstone first went for home rule under pressure from the Irish group in the um, Parliament of Westminster. Now, that Parliament uh, ran the empire and it comprised the upper classes of England it comprised uh, the great parties the liberal and the conservative parties um, 
but with no particular affection for Ireland. The Liberals were in power at the time of the famine, for example. But the Liberals were there for a long time, and when um, the Home Rule issue would come up from one year to the other after Gladstone set the ball rolling, uh, another phrase determined the course of events. It was um, the famous thing by Randolph Churchill, if the old, if GOM goes for uh, home rule, the orange card is the one to play. In simple language, they whooped up the unionists of Ireland, particularly the northeast, which was the industrial side of Ireland, where the shipyards were, rope building, linen manufacturing. Well, that was pretty well gone at the time. But it was the area where there was uh, most taxation collected in Ireland. And the rest of Ireland was really... Uh, at the time of the rising, and for many years afterwards, the rest of the island was really Guinness's Brewery and a large pub, uh, sorry, a, a large farm. Mm. That's what it was. There was very little industry. There was terrible poverty. Slums of Ireland, were, of Dublin, were the worst in Europe. 20,000 families lived in one room in the slums. And Throughout that time, there were several elections, and in some of which the Home Rule was carried by majorities of five to one. But the resistance was such that uh, the London Parliament hesitated to come up against the vested interests. And the big resistance came prior to the um, rising with the Larne gun running, in which uh, the Orangemen ran in guns, uh, and uh, military equipment of all sorts under the noses of uh, the army and the police, the RUC, RIC. Nobody made the slightest effort to stop them landing them at Larne. And, of course, they were able to sail them right through the English fleet. Both the army and the navy, senior service, of course, were permeated by uh, younger sons of Anglo-Irish families, they didn't get the land, but they got a commission and they went off. And these guys were not going to allow, A, the empire to be dismembered, as they saw it, and B, uh, the rebels to get their ancestral homes. They had got that land at the point of a sword by conquest, and they were going to hold it. And uh, no liberal vacillation in London uh, or weakness was going to take it away. And, in fact, no less a man than the soldier who put down the rising and shot the leaders, General Sir John Maxwell, said afterwards that the latitude given to the orange element was what caused the rising. Uh, the most extraordinary lengths were gone to by the Conservatives were still out of power at the outbreak of the war mm. and they were demented uh, it was real fascism overthrowing the elected, you know, results of the ballot box, overthrowing the voice of the mother of parliament and telling the Ulster people there was no lengths that they could go to that they wouldn't be supported and uh, baking out that the people who were conceding whole rule were traitors and they uh, had their own Ulster volunteers to back this up along with the support in, in uh, England and facing them where every action begets a reaction, where a green volunteer force 
Now, that had been the idea of a man called Owen McNeil, uh, who thought that if uh, it came to the point, in the, this was in the run-up to the... Um, the rising one up to the World War, in fact, the outbreak of the Great War. He uh, wrote an article in the Gaelic League paper called On Clive Sullish, uh, in which he put forward the idea that uh, as one of the great English parties, the Conservatives, were putting forward the idea of force and encouraging and fomenting rebellion to prevent the will of the Parliament uh, being carried prevent home rule being uh, put through, that the nationalists should put an army in the field, uh, the or at least have a volunteer force, they, put it, they didn't think in terms of army. And um, it, the um, idea struck the people, because they'd been watching all this defiance and yeah. all these uh, manoeuvres, and uh, huge numbers joined the volunteer force. But they were joining... Uh, not for an offensive war, but to safeguard home rule against mm. mob rule, as they saw it, against yeah. the Ulster volunteers. And Parik Pierce summed up their um, sort of attitude very well. Uh, he said very strongly that, uh, in fact, he said, cursed be the sort the had or the man who would take up arms against his um, Protestant brother or would. Uh, you know, act in a sectarian fashion. But he said um, to him, uh, the sight of a Protestant Orangeman with a rifle was far less ridiculous than the sight of a nationalist without one. And that was very much their spirit. And there were other groupings like James Connolly, who had this little unit, this Irish Citizen Army, which uh, was formed to defend the strikers against the police. In the great lockout of 1913, it was very brutally put down. Uh, the the uh, effort at founding Irish trade unions, Connolly and Larkin had founded the Irish mm. Transport and General Workers Union. Uh, Larkin went off to the States because he could see he wasn't going to get anywhere with, uh, you know, labour politics in Ireland. And uh, he didn't agree at all when he, when he heard that Connolly had marched uh, the Citizen Army, the Labour Party, as it was in Ireland then, into the GPO because he correctly foresaw that it never marched out again. The um, motor force in Irish politics thereafter was um, a nationalist, uh, two two nationalist parties uh, who had a civil war, which was a split, really, of the right from the further right. Yeah. And... That's continued on as we know to our present day. Between Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil. Yeah. But there wasn't, uh, well, we're jumping ahead, but uh, the split that occurred in, in Fianna Fáil wasn't a split, it was just a caning. They got a huge number of their seats were lost because of the negligent way they ran the country prior to the banking bailout and the crash. But uh, up to that, it was very strong monolithic party, and Fianna Gael, in fact, was the weaker side. But that's the way it was, a right-wing society, rural society. But over in Westminster, the leader of uh, the Home Rule, the Irish Parliamentary Party, John Redmond, uh, was putting the pieces together. After the fall of Parnell, the Irish Party meant nothing. They were split. Yeah. Home Rule fell. And 
nothing much happened until prior to the war, tried to put the thing through and pacify one side of the empire at least, or one part of it, in the face of a war. Uh, it looked as though whole moon was going to go through. But with the outbreak of the war, they passed it in the House, but they put it in the back burner. It wasn't to be implemented until after the war. Yeah. And, of course, to the like of Tom Clark and Pierce and the signatories of the Rising, Shaw McDermott, etc., that was just a confirmation in their belief they'd never get anything without fighting for it. Redmond didn't believe in that. He was a very honourable, decent guy. But I think there's an irony, or at least there's a symbolism in the position of a bust that they put up to him in the House of Commons. They did respect him. Uh, the people who dealt with the Liberal Party, some of the ministers, like Augustin Birrell, who looked after Irish affairs, the chief secretary, uh, were very fond of him, respected him. But they put up a bust to him. And the bust is quite small, but it's on a t quite a big plinth, so it looks big. It's on a stand. But it's the positioning that's really interesting and symbolic. It's outside the members' bar. It's not inside. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he uh, did deserve great credit for bringing to that point because it should be remembered that um, the whole idea of having an Irish parliament, an Irish representative or Irish representation in the House of Commons was to stifle uh, Irish political growth. Mm. The Act of Union way back in 1800 after the 1798 rebellion which was really a fomented rebellion. Uh, they did want to bring that on so they could crush it easily, and then it gave them the uh, pre pretext to bring in the Act of Union and make Ireland like Scotland, Wales, and generally the Act of Union was Union was the, was very much the thing at the time. And the, the Irish got um, 105, I think it was, members in the Parliament. But the parliament is 600 and something strong. So even if they all stood together, they wouldn't achieve anything. And the genius of O'Connell was that he, with only a portion of that 100, because I don't know how much he would have had, maybe 30 seats, 30 Catholic deputies following him. They were always shifting. Of the other, of the 100, let's say he had 30, there'd be at least another 30 would be Protestant landowners. Mm. And then there'd be more this or that and so on. But he managed to uh, cobble together uh, enough of an alliance to force Catholic emancipation through in 1829. And he became the first uh, Catholic MP to be elected. He was elected in Clare. They voted him out. They passed an act of parliament to get rid of him. They didn't want a Catholic Irishman in parliament. But he, he managed to overturn it. And... It, emancipation meant that there was now uh, chances of the a professional class getting a toehold in the you know corridors of power in the upper echelons of the army, the professions, civil service, and commerce, and so on. And uh, that kind of trend had continued throughout the um, century. The appalling famine, of course, showed. If you needed any illustration, uh, the evil of the uh, Act of Union, because as we know in our time today, it's bad enough trying to get, if you're a farmer down in Kerry or Cork or 
Roscommon or wherever, um, and you've got flooding, it's damn difficult to get your TDs to move them up in Dublin to get anything done. Yeah. But if you're starving and you have no parliament in Dublin, it's even harder to try to get some response from the desk of a man like Trevelyan, the head of the uh, Treasury, who was in fact in charge of Irish relief, uh, and by accident of fate, uh, fate he, he was really the policymaker for the famine. He, um, he'd be like Ben Bernanke in our time today, the American head of the Federal Reserve, yeah. who fortunately did his degree on the Great Depression and saw that restricting credit and the money was the wrong way to go in a disaster. And he prints money and he got he got the uh, American economy back on track. Yeah. Uh, or Ken Whittaker later in our lives, he, he rescued the whole Irish economy because David Ayer and his party were gone too, too old and uncaring to do anything about the state of the economy. But unfortunately, Trevelyan was going the other way. He was a, a very brilliant man. He... Um, Actually, it, now this was an era of absolute privilege. I mean, chinless wonders got commissions of put in charge of men's lives in armies and in the navy. They got into the civil service on pull, and he actually was so influential that they listened to him in the operation on the power and in the parliament, and they let him reform the entire civil service. And today's civil service is not often recognised. Was set up really by Charles Trevelyan. And is the, that the famous Trevelyan from the, the, this Roy, is from the man fields of Attenry? The is, man who they still sing about mm. in the fields of Attenry. He's uh, the man is going corn, to yeah. uh, a prison ship because he stole Trevelyan's corn and a prison ship lies waiting in the bay. And that Trevelyan was the guy who um, really controlled Irish famine li relief and he was absolutely doctrinaire and the Liberals had that kind of, uh, if you're poor, it's your own fault. You know, Adam Smith type uh, economics and the mm. marketplace determines everything. You don't interfere with the market. Lay, um, lazy fair, they called it. You know, and it's worth going on about Devalian, as I am, because I want to show you that people like Michael Collins, who was born. In West Cork, one of the worst hit areas by the famine, and he would have grown up here. He got appalling stories about the piles of deaths outside the, on the road and the awful sights and so on. There was a folk memory of famine, and it spawned the Fenian movement immediately afterwards. But the British were quite um, easily able to penetrate that with spies and so on. But what it did was it left... Uh, the tradition of the famine, it left the uh, cell system which, of the Fenians, which they had founded on French revolutionary societies in Paris, and it left uh, a, an organized wing of, uh, the, of Irish republicanism in America and in, in other places as well, but chiefly in America, because the famine had created huge emigration bitter immigrants really to, wanting to do something to strike at the Americans and uh, the um, leaders of uh, Irish Americana included men like John Devoy and um, 
uh, Joe McGarrity and O'Donovan Rossa, who was a corkman, and they a wing of that movement of the general feeling, like we're familiar today with splits in the IRA, and there are dissident Republicans. Formerly, there were the official IRA and the provisional IRA, and uh, they went their various ways, and depended, you know, on circumstances and organisation and will, which came out on top. And O'Donovan Ross's wing. Uh, founded, um, well, they were the precursors of the provisional IRA's bombing campaign in England. They set off bombs and tried to blow up, for example, London Bridge. And one of the people who went down for that, he'd come over from, he was safely ensconced in America. He'd been uh, born in Tyrone. Uh, his father had been in the British Army. It was Tom Clark. And Tom, under the name of Wilson, did 15 years in horrendous uh, penal servitude conditions. Uh, he would have, you know, been in solitary confinement for most of that time. And uh, would do things like, to keep himself sane in the dark, he'd tear a button off his uniform and throw it somewhere and spend the rest of the day going around on his hands and knees trying to find it in the dark. He wrote his jail journal with a bit of graphite from the stub or the hub or whatever you call it, where the uh, the door fit, fitted into a hole and to keep the iron uh, moving so that it wouldn't grate and wouldn't just seize up. They put graphite underneath it and graphite, as you know, is what they have in pencils. So Clark managed to make a pencil out of this stuff and wrote his, journal, his jail journal, pretty terrible journal. But he apparently uh, had the effect of uh, attracting attention and of, um, you know, bringing people, young people, to his, you know, his mm. way of thinking. And John Redmond was one of those, uh, leader of the Parliamentary Party, whom his activities would have been undermining and would have been attacking parliamentarianism as wasting time, Uncle Tomism. They weren't going to get anywhere. Uh, Redmond prayed him to tremendous tri uh, tribute and said what a wonderful man he was and one of the finest patriots he'd met and visited him in jail and organized meetings for him. So eventually Clark got out and he went to um, America he met the kind of men we're talking about, the Unknown Rosses, Joe McGarrity, Devoy, all the leaders of Irish-American opinion. He did quite well out there. He married uh, Kathleen Daly, who, a lot younger than him, of a famous Fenian family from Limerick. And uh, she... Um, they, he was in a fair way. He had two uh, small farms in New York County, uh, but he, he gave it up to come back, give up safety and comfort mm. after all that, to come back to Ireland, started to cut the little businesses here, newsagent shop, tobacconists uh, in Parnell Square, and he had other little shops nearby, and he attracted the young revolutionary-minded people 
uh, of the time to him. And his little shop was well watched by the political police, the special branch, particularly for the Cubbigans goings of Sean McDermott. Sean McDermott is a very interesting man. Uh, he had a bad leg, polio leg, and he hadn't very much formal education, but he was a great organiser and a wonderful personality, apparently. People spoke very highly of him. And they have, um, it's well worth a visit, the state have um, refurbished his uh, cottage, his home, in Kilty Clogher in County Leitrim. And it's worth seeing because it gives you, it, it illustrates far better than any talking just what was the life of a small farmer, an Irish small farmer or a labourer indeed, living in this two-room cottage, eight or ten children, and on the side of a mountain in a time when paved roads, forget it, it wasn't Tarmacadam, you know. And you can imagine the mother pregnant trudging back from the village five or six miles away with the groceries, the ordinary business and mm. living, and how he would have looked around him at this and uh, decided there was a better way and that he, he wanted to change society. And like all the leadership of the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, uh, which was the descendant of the, the Fenian movement founded in Paris, uh, they wanted uh, better, what they call social services nowadays. Though they wouldn't be described as socialists, they were nationalists, they were reared in the country and farms and so on. Most of them were Catholic. Well, they were Catholic to varying degrees. Thomas McDonough would have been extremely Catholic. Um, did the religion matter that much? Oh, it mattered an awful lot. Yeah, yeah it did. Mm. W.T. Cosgrave, who fought in 1916, for example, uh, he proposed when they were drawing up, uh, you know, when the question of an Irish parliament was becoming more real after 16, and the question of what sort of a country do we want, what sort of a country can we have, and what influences do we need, uh, he proposed that the, uh, the new parliament should have a kind of a theological upper chamber where any legislation that might be contrary to Catholic teaching should be vetted, so not to give offence to the Vatican. Okay. And uh, the rosary was said in his house every night. Oh. And if you dropped in there, and there was always some progress, you were expected to join in. Uh, it was in no way sectarian, yeah. but just very strongly religious. Mm -hmm. That was a type of Irishman <clears throat> that was like the fellows who built the two Irish builders, uh, two Irishmen uh, who built the um, Empire State Building, Empire State Building in New York. That's the kind they were mm. conservative, honorable, strict Catholics. They, with the help of uh, the, the uh, American bunny, yeah. they ran in. Erskine Childers actually sailed, sailed them in. Just on the very eve of the rising, they uh, got a few rifles. There's a letter in my book from Pierce, you can read it, and he gives the exact armament they had. And it would be accurate to a bullet, but it makes it clear they hadn't hope in hell. They were going out to make a sacrifice of their lives, to change public opinion, so that all this shallying about home rule and, mm. um, you know, would be just swept aside in a tide of emotion. 
And as he said in a famous um, speech um, article, um, because he'd repeated it, he was a famous orator around Dublin at the time, so he'd have been saying the same thing in a lot of places. But he said one very important thing. He said, beware the risen people, for they will take what you would not give. That was their attitude. Yeah. Keep your head up and don't be taking handouts from anybody. We're Irish, we're entitled to our own country. Look at the way they're making a cat's paw out of it, you know, between the Liberals and the Conservatives, flirting with the Orangemen. It was pure fascism. They were right, of course. They were they were overturning the, the, the voice of the battle, the, um, the verdict of, of the ballot box. So when the war broke out, Redmond, honourable and decent as he was, he still believed that uh, even though Home Rule had been postponed, that uh, this uh, Parliament would yield uh, Ireland's justice and that there would be Home Rule after the war. And he, he didn't, he, he said he supported it, but he didn't realise that they had that by that time partition was de facto, not de jure, but de facto, because they had uh, decided to exclude uh, the northeastern counties. They would indeed have excluded all nine, but uh, Craig, uh, later on in our story, uh, one day Craig, the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, came to Lloyd George and uh, said, yes, I know you think that the nine-county province would be what we'd want in, in Ulster, because they talked about Ulster all the time, it was the Ulster crisis. It wasn't the Home Rule crisis, it was the Ulster crisis. <coughs> but he said, six counties is all we can control because of the Catholic majorities. Mm. And it was that word control which really gave rise to the troubles we saw in our lifetime because in order to control it, they weren't going to allow the Catholics uh, any share in, in government, in housing, they keep them out of uh, employment and so on. Control was the word. Uh, you know, that very strong Catholicism I was talking about was absolutely anathema to the strong Protestants, particularly to the um, strange free Presbyterian element that Paisley uh, manifested in our, in our time. And also 98 had been so bloodily put down the Presbyterians were on the side of the rising at first because they uh, they would be discriminated against, as were the Catholics, but they were butchered, particularly because they wanted to, the British wanted to terrify them into not having any more risings. So they went to the opposite extreme and were very anti uh, the Catholics and Home Rule in the crisis before uh, the World War. So Redmond, anyway... Uh, made what was in effect a recruiting speech. He had been moving to get control of the volunteers. He was this army springing up all around him. He was a political leader. But this thing was being controlled by men who were not. He had a very shrewd idea that it wasn't his idea of democracy they were going for. They'd be reaching for the sword one of these days. Mm. And uh, so he got con pretty well got control of the executive and finally made a speech, a at Wooden Bridge, which split the volunteers. He thought that uh, they should join up. Once the war was joined, uh, he felt that they should fight with England. 
and indeed his brother, who was an old, uh, quite late in life, uh, he joined up, and he should have been. I mean, there was no need with his age; he would have been given a back, you know, well beyond the the lines job, safe job. He could have come through the war and scathe, but he wouldn't have it. If other young men were going forward, he'd go. And, of course, he got killed. So Redmond was, and the Redmonds were sincere. They were a Catholic family in Waterford, an old Catholic family. And uh, anyway, I, I would respect them, his memory, anyhow. But um, meanwhile, as they say, back at the ranch, with the volunteers split, most of them go off to join the British Army, but those who didn't and stayed in Ireland continued drilling and uh, the leaders of the revolution, whom you could think of really as the signatories of the tr uh, they decided uh, that they'd wait a suitable opportunity and have a rising, at the cost of their lives of course, but it would wake an Ireland up mm. and out of it would come, as they saw it, freedom. And of course, they meant 32 county freedom too. And what they wanted is the 1916 text, which really does deserve reading. I mean, the, ex the problems that we face in Ireland today after the disasters of the bankers inflicted on us, uh, they wouldn't have happened if we'd had the, the sort of country envisaged in the 1916 proclamation. If we had indeed cherished all the children of the nation equally, which is the way it ended up. Um, we didn't, and here we are, with suicide rampant in the country. You know, you've been told a lot about recovery, but there's still a tidal wave of homelessness, suicide, unemployment, and a generation is in, living in other countries through emigration. And the elites are still, who brought this on us, are still there, chiefly lawyers and accountants and stockbrokers and so on, politicians. But anyway, uh, that wasn't the dream they had. And they decided with the remnant that they had of the volunteers that they would stage a rising. They'd always had that idea, you know, based on the Wolf Tone idea uh, back in 98, that England's difficulty was Ireland's opportunity. And when they'd be occupied with the Great War or something like that, it was the time to strike. Good military thinking, but you can imagine it looks like treason mm. to the decision takers and, and the uh, Protestant ascendancy back in Ireland, most of whose young brothers are out in the, the trenches or on the, in the Navy, in the ships. So uh, they um, picked on Easter Monday uh, to have the rising, and unfortunately for them, uh, at the last minute, almost a few days before the rising, Owen McNeil got to hear about it, and he was furious. As I said, all he wanted was a defensive force if there was an effort made to uh, withstand the introduction of home rule, then they should have a method of countering it by force. And he was horrified to find they were going to go on the offensive and stage a revolution. So he put an ad in the Sunday Independent uh, saying that all parades, all volunteer activity was cancelled for the weekend, all parades and all activities. Now that had the effect of splitting it even further. 
And one particularly tragic, gallant figure, the the O'Reilly, the D is an old Irish uh, sort of title. The O'Reilly was a Kerry man, and they took you know quite a good way of business. He had something to lose, and he he also had a motor car, which very few people had. And he went round the country, uh, tried to call off the rising, telling all local commanders. So whatever chance they had with the lack of weapons and so on that Pierce outlined, that scuppered their chances. Mm. But still they went out uh, from Liberty Hall, took a number <clears> of <throat> strategic posts around the city, and uh, that not enough to cover all they intended. Uh, but they held on to those they did get with great tenacity and great courage and fought for several days, even though they were outnumbered and there was artillery fire brought to bear on them. And... Not alone was the Curragh garrison uh, employed against them, several thousand troops down there and other gar barracks around the country, uh, but shiploads of troops ported from Dunleary. And there were terrible, tragic stories. Uh, a lot of innocent people got killed. Uh, one of the first detachments of supporters of the British connection to come under fire were a group called the Georgius Rex, uh, the Georgius Rex, they were uh, they were nicknamed the Gorgeous Rex because they were all middle-aged men. They were kind of a dad's army, you know, and they marched from hot and bothered, marched in from um, John Leary on the morning of the rising. Uh, and when they came under uh, Captain Malone's post at Mount Street Bridge, they were fired on nearly decimated they had no bullets in their rifles that was the kind of level of preparation mm. and the leader the British general uh, was General Lowe he was you know a real brass hat the kind of you could understand how the casualty lists piled up in Flanders other places during the First World War his subordinates wanted the uh, attack on the rebel positions to be pressed on into the main area, Dublin, the GPO, and other spots like that, and just skirt the, um, what you call it, um, Mount Street, we don't need to march directly through it, go around it, go down there to the docks, go down to the Liffey, Ring's End, and so on, find a way in, or go up, further up, and find a way in, and, you know, up above Bagger Street, and, and come down that way. That was their idea, and um, Lono insisted that they march. So there was hundreds of troops, half of all the casualties, five or six hundred of the casualties of Easter week were sustained there under uh, Malone and a few men. They had very little arms. Malone had, I saw it actually, it was a Mauser um, pistol. That was his main weapon, and... Uh, they held off hundreds of troops until finally they surrendered and was cut down afterwards. You can imagine the, the way the, the troops felt after the slaughter. I mean, the road into Dublin around that area was heaving mass of wounded men out in the, in the sun with no water and lying on the pavement calling for their mothers and badly wounded and in pain. So... That thing caused for, called, caused that, that vision. 
it did cause a lot of the reprisals which did take place later what um, what was the um the international kind of like what what attempts or did we make did our leaders make any attempts for international support and if so did what was the er, like our leaders did the the Fina, did the nationalists make them? Yeah, the rebels? Did, what was the what, well, the, what international had, support they did the try. Then? I mean, in the in the rising in the proclamation of sixteen, you'll see that they'd risen. They claimed, you know, they'd risen with the support of their gallant allies in Europe, etc. The gallant allies in Europe let them down badly. That was the Germans. Was code for the yeah, Germans. The Kaiser, yeah. Yeah, and they thought they were going to get the devil and all in the way of arms, and they thought German officers would be sent over to them, German heavy weaponry. And in fact, only very few came back on uh, the Helga, and uh, which was captured because a complete mess was made of the arrangements to landing. Um, the the man in charge in Kerry of that end of things, Austin Stack, seems to be barely competent. He, he uh, there was supposed to be a green light showed from the shore and. It never came. You know the song about the lonely Bannon Strand and Roger Casement waiting, but no answer from the shore mm. came from the, from the lonely Bannon Strand. And Casement had been sent over to um, Germany to make arrangements for these weapons, which, uh, as a result of a visit by one of the another of the signatories, Plunkett, uh, were uh, supposed to be coming. Plunkett was apparently promised all these things, officers, better weapons, all the rest of it. I mean, it would have been in the Germans' interest to have Britain uh, tied up with the war in Dublin. Um, in fact, part of the uh, reason the Kaiser went to war was the fact that his some of his advisers told him that Britain would be so tied up with the Ulster crisis that they wouldn't be able to fight them. It was one of the miscalculations yeah. he made because it looked as if there was going to be a split in England. There was fierce feuding at dinner parties and dire warnings of civil war in England, all that kind of thing, headlines full of it. But it all came to nothing, smoke and bottle. But when the trumpet sounded and Germany and Britain went to war, uh, that was the end of domestic strife, they simply put the home rule thing on the back burner and went off to their traditional way to fight. So Casement, as I say, had gone to um, Germany to make a rage for all this stuff coming over. And also uh, he had, by now, the war, remember 1916, we're talking about, whereas the war had started in 1914. So there was two years of war. Uh, nearly three, if you think about it, mm. two and a bit. And um, he, one of his main objectives was to get the um, his hands on the Irish prisoners of war in the German camps, the prisoners of war, to come over and fight in, in Dublin. But only a handful would join his brigade. They'd signed up to fight for England. They were loyal to their cause, their uniform. Maybe they'd weren't all that impressed with him. We simply don't know which what was in their minds. But they didn't join up anyway. And uh, he was disillusioned with the Germans. The Germans are fairly contemptuous of us. Some of the papers or some of the uh, 
you know, I've read some of the dispatches, for our German intelligence dispatches to uh, back to Berlin, when the when the, the rising broke out, and they refer to disturbances breaking occurring in Dublin. That's how it struck them. Mm. It didn't strike them as a full scale military uprising. So Casement came ashore uh, on uh, down on Banner Strand. I don't know whether we'd be down there, but it's a big strand with an onshore wind and there's breakers. You go in a small boat if you if you're not used to boats and you don't know how to swim. Uh, I don't know, you know. It's not the most forgiving. Uh, anyway, the like boat easily turned the boy yeah. boat, and he uh, came in very wet and cold, and he was captured very easily, um, miserable and cold, and so on. And he was a famous man in the world because of his humanitarian ac activities out in Peru and out in Latin mm. America. He had uh, exposed the evils of slavery and. Similarly, in Belgium, uh, held Africa and the Congo, what they did with the rubber thing, you know, yeah. cutting the hands off people. He was awarded a, a knighthood for this. Oh, he was, he yeah. was an international hero, but he soon became the lunatic in, in their dispatches, and uh, they blackened his name by, uh, they got a hold of his diaries. He was unquestionably homosexual, because mm. the nationals would never admit that, and they said uh, it was a damnable effort to blacken him. But certainly did to, but the damnable thing wasn't that he was homosexual, but that they had used his, his predilection, his bias, uh, to show Americans, in particular, high ranking them. Because upper English society, of course, the public school system was uh, no stranger to buggery. But that didn't, in a propaganda war, anything yeah. at all is a weapon to hand. So, uh, as I was saying earlier on, uh, Austin Stack was supposed to mastermind the landing of the um, the arms. And I think it shows you how incompetent he was. He'd heard that uh, Casement was captured. So what did he do? He got up on his bike and cycled over to the, to the RIC station to see could he find out, was he there, what was going to happen to him? So the boys just said, come in, yeah. and stuck him in jail. Thanks very much. And there, he, he, he survived the ride because of that. <laughs> yeah. and of course, the detractors would say that's what he was aiming at. <laughs> I don't know now. He, he was a brave man. But uh, you couldn't say that was the most farsighted decision ever made by a revolutionary officer. <laughs> and, well, they, they went to war, as we know, and they... Um, held out for a week and troops poured in. General Maxwell came and he um, took the view that these were uh, rebels and an act of treachery in the middle of a war. And they were held in pretty grim conditions, court-martialed and condemned to death. Uh, now, by the standards at the time with the World War um, raging, uh, the executions were not terrible. Mm. But they did uh, shoot all the leaders uh, and uh, various prominent people like uh, Ned Daly, uh, Kathleen Clark, that's Tom Clark's widow's brother, held out particularly, fought very hard down in the uh, King Street area, South King Street area, and um, he was shot. And... Uh, 
it was the calibre of the men and the way they fought, combined with the executions, coming against the background I've been trying to scratch out, the famine, uh, the way the union, the, the orange men um, were allowed to smuggle in weapons, uh, when the uh, Irish lander, the, the nationalist lander, the few weapons they got at Hoth and marched them back in, they were met by troops and eventually, you know, there was stoning and a mob and all the excitement that would happen and um, a few demonstrators were shot and the contrast, <coughs> Bachelor's Walk had occurred. The contrast between Bachelor's Walk and everybody standing back and saluting as lorry after lorry load of arms passed through, you know, illegally <coughs> and vanished down the road. Uh, they tried several way, times along the way to the, the police to take the arms off them, but they didn't succeed. That was one thing stuck in my mind. Then the um, the uh, executions, of course, the stories of how they had fought, and the, it was a complete reversal of opinion. Some of the uh, stories I've read of... Uh, survivors of they described how they went to how they were going to um, be marched in columns down to the boat to be taken over to English prisons uh, and the separation women as they called them in particular uh, throwing things at them and jeering them throwing flour at them the separation women were the women who got a separation allowance while the husbands were away fighting yeah. in the front there was so intent with, with the unemployment, you can imagine there were thousands of them in the British Army. I mean, one of the, the units uh, put the boot into the, the rebels during the rising with the Dublin Fusiliers. Yeah. So there was brother against brother in that, to a degree. Certainly Irishmen against Irishmen. And then they got the blame for the destruction of O'Connell Street, but that was largely caused by the British shelling it and flames spreading from one to the other. But the very flames helped them because they'd stayed in the burning GPO and fought on, etc. Uh, so, and then mm, the demeanor at the court martials was was very striking. Pierce was described, you know, by one of the officers at the court martial, so one of the finest men he ever met or saw, you know. Um, Clark was sixty-seven at this time. He'd shouldn't have come within the NASA's roar of the GPO. He'd been doing some revolver practice a few days before it, and he'd, he shot himself in the elbow. Imagine <laughs> the pain of that. Yeah. And yet he goes in and lasts for a week and the, in shot and shell. They say he really freaked out, but he was there at the end. And he kept, you know, he kept his, his resolution. Uh, after the um, surrender, the prisoners were all lined up in uh, different places. Most of them, the GPO lot, spent their time. Uh, they were out all night in the gardens of the rotunda. You know, at the back, under the National Gallery, and yeah. at the back of the rotunda, there was a lot of grass there. And they slept out in the open. And um, Collins, Michael Collins, uh, tried to keep um, Clark warm and alive by lying alongside him all night keeping his arms around him <coughs> and um, in the morning then um, at some stage anyway a, a Captain Lee Wilson 
realised who Will uh, Clark was, and he saw some nurses uh, looking out at the, from the rotunda at these prisoners. So he had um, Clark stripped and paraded in front of the nurses, and Collins said that by the so and so, he'd pay for that, and he was he had him shot a few years later Jeez. in Wexford for that. Just on Collins and and that bit that you're talking about, I read in. Um, a book about Collins by, I can't remember the artist's name, something McKay or McCoy, I think was his name. I think Michael Collins' Life, I think, was the book. At that moment, you're, you're describing where they had been kept out overnight, out in the open and that kind of thing. It came to the bit where they were kind of separating them to divide it to who goes into prison, who goes off to be executed, that kind of thing. I don't know if it was just uh, kind of a tale or if you've heard of it yourself. Collins avoided kind of a much worse fate than being sent off to a prison camp purely because somebody called his name and he wandered. Somebody called his name and he went across the room and said, who, you know, who's looking yeah. for me? You know, you can imagine saying, what the F and Noon, who, who, what Aegis, you know, is calling me. But it saved his life because one of the political detectives um, was, the political detectives, um, the G-men, they were going. See, they knew who was who, and they went around the prisoners, taking down their names and pointing them out to the soldiers to be taken away, far as it proved execution. And uh, the sympathies that uh, people might have had for family men, people going to churches and being shot with their fingers to the holy water and so on. The the people who did that and the people who directed that they be shot, never felt uh, any pang, and maybe they did, they came old and came to die, that often happens, but during the revolution they didn't, because they never forgot the sight of these people. To them they were like carrying crows over a battlefield, swooping on corpses or wounded men uh, to pick them out for the execution. Uh, now, one that rankled particularly with them was uh, Sean McDiarmida. McDiarmid um, had the bad leg, and again it was Lee Wilson, I think, who took away his stick, and he had to march with the rest of them with the bad leg to Richmond Barracks. And they tried, one of the people who tried supporting him uh, made the, uh, the British pay dearly for that. Uh, it was Liam Tobin, and he was really the head of intelligence for Collins, yeah. the head of the famous squad too, in a way, though he wasn't in it. But he, he shot a lot of people. Uh, you know, he he was the guy who picked out the people who needed to be shot, and in some cases did it himself. But his motivation would have been uh, to start with, well, he fought in 16, but the grimness came in with that kind of thing. And uh, he described, he's a very good man to follow, he described um, the complete depression being marched down the keys and everybody shouting and jeering at them. Somebody had just thrown flour over him. When some man came out of nowhere and ran across to him, I started sharing him with bars of chocolates and things and shouting, good lad, you know, or something like that. And they got the odd shout at that. But when they came back at Christmas, they started releasing him. That was April. And they started releasing them on Christmas because uh, such a whirlwind of publicity had built up mm. that it became 
problematic whether America would enter the war on Britain's side or not. So they had to start releasing them. And that's how de Valera escaped. It wasn't that his mother's efforts and his part in America, as some people think, freedom, but it was that Asquith, the British Prime Minister, very soon after the rising, began to realise that uh, Maxwell's execution policy uh, was having more of a damaging effect than the rebels ever achieved. And uh, they, there was no women to be shot. That's how Countess Markovich escaped. And uh, de Valera escaped because Maxwell was uh, going down to a list of the pri prisoners, the names, with a man called Wiley, who was chief prosecutor. He later became a judge in the Free State, and uh, he um, was the man who ran the horse show for years in the Royal Dublin Horse Show at Balls Bridge. Uh, as I said, Edmund, the RDS, as mm. it now is. And uh, he he wrote in his memoir that he was standing beside Max, was going, who's this, who's that, who's this? So he told them who they were, and uh, Connolly, that's the Connolly, you know, that's that's the one that the Irish wanted shot, the William Martin Murphys and all the business people, the opponents uh, during the Great Lockout, people who didn't want trade unions to get a grip in, in Ireland. William Martin Murphy being the... The owner of the, the Independent, yeah. the head of the Dublin Tramway Company, and uh, a huge entrepreneur in his day, a very admirable man in many ways, but implacably right-wing and opposed to trade unions. Mm. Uh, so he, um, his press had actually called for Connolly's execution. Um, in the Independent, they talked about the bravery of the people. Some of them were misled. and Bad notice, bad notice what they did was they were misled. But certain of the leaders still awaiting sentence, were to be treated with the extreme rigour of the law. That, that was Connolly he was talking about. So your man, uh, Maxwell, Sir John Maxwell, is running his pen down this list of names and uh, it came to de Valera and uh, he said, and him, who is he? He said, well, he said, he's nobody, he's a teacher. And Maxwell said, according to Wiley, right, we'll do Connolly and we'll stop at him. And if that pen had gone down another eighth of an inch, Devil Ever would not have been hurt. Well, he would have been as a martyr. But he he survived. Uh, he survived a few a few little episodes like that, didn't he? Devil Ever. Not so many. Uh, the big thing he survived was Easter Week itself because... Um, he was the commander, he was the last commander to su uh, surrender because he was so far from the uh, the main action. He was down at Bowlands Mill. And uh, by the time the surrender uh, note from Pierce and Connolly reached him, from Pierce anyway, he, um, his men, uh, he ordered them to surrender. He made sure that uh, he didn't get shot himself. Uh, he went over with a, a British military cadet whom they had captured to uh, the hospital, Don's Hospital, and said, there's a woman making a, uh, a radio documentary about it because, about the windowsill because he, 
it was on her mother, her grandmother's windowsill that he wrote the accepted the surrender, whatever he mm. did. Anyway, lent on it and used it. But uh, the point about Bowdoin's Mill and about uh, all I said about Mount Street was that that episode captured the imagination of the people. And even though, as you know today, you can see where Bowdoin's Mill is and you can see where um, Mount Street is, there was no communication at all between them. It'd be like trying to cross a shooting gallery to... Yeah. You know, to reach one's, uh, to make a, any sort of contact. But as the glass commander, as the man who was technically in command of what Malone was doing, uh, he was the, he been the last to surrender, last surviving combatant, escaped the firing squads, had inflicted the greatest losses of the British. Mythic status was conferred on him. And in, fa- in fact, uh, many was he's a man. Who, which his later showed in life, he had a terrific resolution uh, when he had his mind set and made up. But he he um, he had six children, and his son Vivian used to describe to me how uh, the father used to take him by the hand, Moria, on a Sunday morning. They were going for a walk, father and son. In fact, what Devilair was doing was spotting on the the areas under his command that he'd have to take over and which would be the best strategic posts and so on. But he went off and left them behind him to risk certain death, as it looked, to fight. So you you, you, you have to remember that to him. Um, but he cracked up, seemingly. He wasn't sleeping. Mm. And uh, there was cannon fire. Nothing. They didn't get a shot. One of the men... Um, it could have been a lieutenant Fitzgerald got the bright idea of putting a green flag on uh, an old disused building some way away from Boland's Mill and uh, the, the British fire was directed at it but they, they didn't suffer any casualties in Boland's Mill but it, with all the Dublin going up in flames constant roar of artillery fire and rifle fire even though they weren't firing um, he his nerves seems to he had a nervous fit of some sort. Um, he was he didn't sleep for days, and they'd give an order. Then he countermanded, and he had um, funny kind. Of, he had the volunteer's uniform, all right, the officer's uniform, but he'd red socks and putty boots. You know the boots you lace up, and the the gaunt face, very tall, staring eyes, and he was having quite a disturbing effect on the men. So some of his officers persuaded him uh, to take some rest, to get away from it. And they brought him a bit up the, you know, there at the back of Western Row, where Bowling's Mill is, onto the railway. And they went up a bit. There was a siding. It came down very far. Things were different in those days to today. And uh, here at the siding, there was a little railway carriage. So they put him into that and he lay down for a few hours sleep. And when he woke up, he thought he died and gone to heaven for a couple of minutes because overhead there were cherubs and angels flying around. And vi- gradually his eyes focused and he realized that this was all stucco work on the ceiling of the carriage. Uh, unbeknownst to the men or to himself, they had put him into the royal carriage that was used for the member of the British royal family, came to Ireland, they took them around Ireland in this thing. And uh, that that was part of the Devil Era myth afterwards of the mystique. But the uh, 
the rest of the story, it was all about reaction. Um, the I mentioned Clark a lot. In fact, I only found an interview I did myself, which I now believe is a very important interview, and I had it in my first book, Ireland's is the Rising. It's very difficult to think about Irish history, uh, to know about it. Um, Generally, the academic historians shied away from it. They, they wouldn't write about anything after the Civil War put the kibosh on it. They were afraid and uh, they made all kinds of excuses that the uh, the Customs House had blown it up, the papers had gone up in the four courts and gone up in the Customs House and any and every excuse. But the, the next result was that when the first 50th anniversary of the Rising came round, in 1966, there was only one history of the 50 years between the Rising and 1966, and it was mine, Ireland since the Rising. And in it, I uh, printed an interview I did with Tom Clark's widow, Kathleen Clark. And it really sums up the entire 1916 uh, experience and... Uh, how opinion changed, and you can well see how the emotions changed and how bitterness would have uh, come into it all. Uh, she, <coughs> sorry, she was actually uh, under lock and key uh, when they came to her. Um, she was with some other women who would have been known to the authorities, you know, come to Mon women, and she'd have been known too through the connection with, with Clark. And they came to, to her to say she was wanted. And uh, she had kept a good blouse for this moment. She knew it had come. And um, they, they said, the girls are a bit worried, said, where are they taking you? What's going to happen? Uh, and she said, no, it's not me. They're taking me to my husband to say goodbye. He's going to be shot. And I said, what? I said, why else do you think they'd come to me in this jail and let me out if it wasn't for that reason? And one of the women said, you're a stone. And she said, I was. And she described being brought, it was... The aftermath of the revolution, the city was pretty well flittered. They brought her over to uh, Kilmainham. And when she got into the the door, uh, she was handed over, of course, to the officer, whoever brought her to her husband. And um, there was a priest who was very annoyed. He said that um, Clark had put, wouldn't see him and put him out of his cell. So she was going to say goodbye to the husband. She wasn't going to stop and talk to this guy. But at the same time, she hadn't expected to be met by a priest in that kind of humour. And she asked the husband, uh, what was wrong with the priest? He said, that damn fellow, that bloody fellow. He came in here and told me he'd give me confession if I apologised and said I was sorry for what I had done. And I told him... Uh, I wasn't sorry, I gloried in it and threw him out. So she said goodbye to him and uh, 
She had to make her own way. They let her, she didn't have to go back to the cell. She was let out. Then she described picking her way across the city and rubble and everything. And at, um, she came near to Fairview when she... She had to get to Fairview, if I remember right. Uh, a big policeman stopped her, a DMP, and asked who she was and where she was going. So she told him. And he said, oh, ma'am, you better not go up that way. I think she cut down North Earl Street because there's a bad crowd up there. Now, whether they were, you know, just hooligans or people who would have had it in for the rebels and would mm. certainly would have liked to get their hands on, on the widow for whatever purpose, I don't know. But she anyway made her way home. And uh, the following night, she's with either her cousin or with... Um, well, Tom was duly shot the next morning. And the next day passed, I think a cousin or neighbour made their way into the house and uh, stayed with her. And that night they heard, Dublin was very different in those days, you'd hear a car from miles away. And they heard a vehicle of some sort coming to the house. And she said, they're coming for me. They're taking me to to Ned. I said, so, what? What do you mean, Ned? Surely not's going to happen to Ned. And she said, Do you seriously think they'd send out a car for me at this hour of the night if it wasn't something like that? And if they do take me, do you think it's to say hello to him? So it did stop at their gate. And they did bring her back to the jail to her brother, who looked very pale. You could understand that because... For example, there was cold, those cells were terribly cold, no heating in them, no light, it was candlelight. You can imagine, that's a great way to spend the night before your execution, or a few days before your execution. And she said goodbye to her brother, and again had to make her way home. And she'd been expecting a baby, and she miscarried a few days later. Jesus. Not surprisingly. But... This is her importance. As she was had been in America with uh, Tom, and she was Tom's widow, it was to her that the Americans sent the money when they set up um, uh, an age prisoner's fund. And um, the fund set up, was called what, the Prisoner's Aid Association or something. They were in a very poor way, you can imagine. The, working class people, and there'd be no question of getting the job after being out engaging in treachery against his majesty and the empire. And that money was vital. And who did she pick for this uh, vital task of seeing that money got to the right people? But the newly released Michael Collins, the man who had lain with her husband all night. Mm. Now, Collins had already been compiling the names and addresses of the people in Frongach with him in the jail, the prison camp. And now, through dispersing the money and taking more names and addresses and having the access to every revolutionary who had taken part, really, or in the rising, he was able to build up the IRB right through the country. So Mrs. Clark was a vital link between 1916 and Collins's 
guerrilla activities a little later and in putting him in the position where he was able to conduct them so successfully. But as I say, that interview was in my first book, which is now out of print, and it wouldn't be widely known, so I'm going to resurrect it. I think it should be put out in 16. It shows you what kind of people they were, you know. 100%. Based on that link there between even the the War of Independence and 1916, that alone is a significant blow itself. Oh, absolutely. Um, It's a link. I mean, like in a chain link. No, it's it's a tangible link, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, that's absolutely it. There was a baton hand. She fell out with Tevalera eventually. She didn't approve of his... um, monetary policy would have shown the masses she would very count the money you know mm. and they were beginning to run there was deficit spending for the first time but uh, the thing that she'd part with she became Lord Mayor of Dublin uh, she, the execution during the war of IRA people and but I don't know which of them it was I forget now I can find out though um, Mrs Clark became Lord Mayor of Dublin Mrs Tom Clark did yes wow. became a feeling of all TD and Lord Mayor of Dublin and when this IRA guy was executed by De Valera, she ordered uh, the staff to lower the tricolour to half mast in mourning. Yeah, so a statement. Yeah. So that, that's a the Lord of, Mayor to make to the chief. You that's know, that's almost like a two fingers up to De Valera oh, in many ways. Four. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But with, with the executions themselves, then. You kind of touched on it yourself, but just to draw back on that, the the public opinion around the rising was maybe almost against it initially. You could say, with oh, the it was entirely against it. Yeah. You cannot overstate the revulsion. Um, uh, you know, there was derision and everything when it went into the thing. I remember they issued the the, the proclamation, and uh, one fellow, uh, Pierce, read it outside, but there was no sense of. Uh, Actually, it was Redmond's son, and he was living across the, the way. He was on his honeymoon. He was in Wynn's Hotel yeah. uh, with his new bride, and he saw this thing, uh, extraordinary spectacle unfolding and the reading of the proclamation. And he said, you know, there was nothing like the drama of the French Revolution or anything. Somebody was distributing copies of the proclamation, and he saw one fellow picking it up and saying, oh, I'd have one. Uh, when they hang these beggars, it could be worth a fiver. <laughs> Typical dub, you know. And that was another thing. Was there was terrible looting during the... Uh, during, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. people coming out of these unbelievable slums uh, and coming down O'Connell Street, uh, you come down barefooted and shawly women, you know, going back up with fur coats and boxes of chocolates, you know. Yeah. That's what, with, with, with the poverty, I thought there would have been a lot more support for the horizon. They didn't... They, they, well, I suppose... They, but not with the with the um, separation women, but uh, very soon, the latent sympathy of the working classes came to the surface. Um, Maxwell uh, showed himself to be quite uh, sympathetic, I suppose I could call. It. His letters were brought together to his wife, you know, and, and he, for example, he he, he thought that the slums were a disgrace. Mm. He he said, if a, if a warm-hearted and generous people had been met even halfway, none of this needn't happened. The the slums, he said, are a disgrace, and they could be easily solved. They could have been rectified, but it wasn't done. I mean, at every at the, the the orange would give it all the every hand's turn. He saw blunders being committed, and of course, I suppose all the time he was conscious that I'm getting the blame for all this, you know. Mm. But still, he saw the picture quite clearly. And um, 
talk about press and pulpit being against them, you know, the leaders of public opinion, particularly the bishops, were solidly against them. Um, the Protestant Archbishop was a truly Christian. He wanted them, you know, executions. You know, he wanted a bloody reprisal for these yeah. bloody people who had done these, caused this loss of life and so was, above all of property, you know. Was Pierce's idea then of the blood sacrifice, was that almost successful by chance because of these executions? No, it wasn't. Uh, the, um, it, there was a false romanticism abroad in Europe at those times. Uh, Rupert Brooke, for example, the man who wrote the poem about... Uh, Flanders fields and the poppies and um, there's a place, a spot that is forever England, you know, mm. some soldier fell, you know. And he, the, the blood sacrifice was, would have been his theory too. And um, Pierce wasn't out of line with that. And all that changed pretty quickly when um, the, the word coming back of what mustard gas was doing, for example, in the trenches, and recruitment fed off, no matter what, even if Redmond had gone out in the streets and implored them, they wouldn't do. Yeah. I mean, a peop the thing that isn't often enough stressed, I feel, is that when after the war, Sinn Féin, after 16, Sinn Féin got together again, and uh, what they call the khaki election, it was the great election they held in England, and consequentially in Ireland after the war, and those in khaki, which represented a vast percentage of the public, they voted for a change of government. Yeah. And uh, just as they did after the Second World War, when Churchill went out and in came Labour. And why they voted for Sinn Féin in this country in that, uh, it wasn't just memories of 1916 and their bravery. It was in gratitude for... Sinn Féin's successful campaign to abort conscription and prevent it being introduced to Ireland, which, of course, a lot of the diehards wanted. Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson talked about these shirkers and slackers and traitors and treachery. And, you know, we don't have half enough corpses over here. They'd make excellent mm. cannon fodder kind of idea. <laughs> and it's, they might be much good, but they'd stop a bullet. Of course, they were terrific soldiers, you know. But anyway, uh, the people, uh, combination of the memories of 16, um, the propaganda of the um, Sinn Féin machine, I mean, they make the present Sinn Féin, who are pretty good at propaganda, look like amateurs. Yeah. They were tough boys, you know. There was nothing soft about them. They were idealists, but they were tough idealists. And... Uh, that got them the vote. They swamped the old Irish party. I think they got oh, 78 or something or 73 seats as against uh, six for the parliamentary party. This the 1918 election? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Something of a huge percentage. Much bigger than occurred in our lifetime with the swing against Fianna Fáil after the crash. Mm. So, um, anyway, it's... Uh, it was a vital swing, seminal occurrence in Ireland. And the idealism of people, the people started investigating their careers and their lives. And, you know, like Sean McDermott, his background came out. He spent, lived a life of considerable hardship and poverty going around the country, 
organizing the IRB. Mm. He was the manager of the newspaper, the Irish Felon, which was the paper that he and Clark produced. And it was, but the name would tell you, Irish Felon, it was a revolutionary document, you know, Fenian. And the memory of the famine, the memory, all these things came to life, you know, to life. And, and martyrs, you know, and you you have, every action has its reaction. They did something to the British, the British lashed back, like Bloody Sunday being the classic example. Yes. You imagine the recruitment that meant, you know. With 2016 also being the year of a general Sorry? election. With, with 2016 now also being the year of a general election. The, you you were saying to me on the way down, actually, you raised a good point about political parties now. What, what was you yeah, saying to me? I was going to ask... Um, with all your kind of research and stuff with the the rebel leaders and the parties around the nationalist parties around back then is there or in hindsight like what do any of the parties now what i suppose what would they be thinking now with the parties and and the politics going on in ireland at the moment i don't think we need waste much time about that they'd be disgusted okay in, in my book uh that I've just written, um, 1916, the mornings after. I'm looking back over the 100 years, and I came to the conclusion that the last decades or two here uh, were decades of betrayal on the part of scandal and betrayal on the part of both Christ and Caesar. Christ for the buggery and the hypocrisy, getting up in the pulpit to preach morality and no divorce, no contraception, and then going round the back of the altar, buggering the altar boy, mm. and then covering it up, and sending the bloody priest out, saying a word to anybody, to another unsuspecting parish. Uh, and you can see that the revolutionaries, like if Tom Clark had a strong enough view of priests to throw a man out of his cell on the night before his execution, can you imagine what his decision would be in handling people like that if such a situation arose? It didn't, and it couldn't, of course, mm. as life isn't like that. But it's a valid comparison to make or query to raise. And as far as standards of honesty and behavior, I know human nature is human nature and things, um, with the best will in the world, power corrupts, you know, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But... Men who were prepared to risk their lives are like Collins who accounted for it and was spent. Uh, can you imagine them tolerating the banks doing what they did and getting away with it? Oh. Bed and breakfast loans, moving money in and out of accounts, big billion, billion pound catology, mm. the regulator not regulating. 37 times he said, either I don't know or I didn't know that or I hadn't heard of it in his uh, public state. Where was he? He was in, they had him in court or something before. The Moriarty so. Tribunal, was it? Not the Moriarty Tribunal. No, no, it's more reason. No. It's part of the banking. No, this is the banking thing. And it yeah. wasn't the banking inquiry that started at least. No, that, that was, was a different, it. I think that's a different fiasco. Yeah, but it, was, it was about yeah. the, how the bloody thing happened what was the Minister for Finance doing? Pa Patrick Howland. What was the Secretary of Department of Finance doing? 
Ken Whittaker was a patriot in East A, and he, he changed the whole fortunes of... Man, I was comparing, you know, his influence to that of Trevelyan. Uh, he would have been in the mould of 1916, though he wasn't a revolutionary. But um, those guys just would not have um, tolerated the kind of corruption. Maybe as they got older and fatter and so on, the IRB had gone like that until mm. some of them, Bulma Hobson and... Uh, Dinny McCullough revived it. Even though Hobson was um, a pacifist, but <coughs> the, the kind of politics over there was just county council, like that fellow. No, but I think this that this is sort of thing we should see. You know, not that oh, it's definitely. very pleasant, but no, what it you need these things to be brought to light. Oh, you, you know? do, but and we need to see them when they are brought Absolutely, to light. So yeah. then, with all that said, would you trust whatever? Because we will have an election in February, I think. And then the the centenary celebrations. Do you trust the powers that be to give a good account of themselves in terms of this the celebrations that might go on? Or well, I think they have uh, they've been forced to come forward a great deal more. I remember uh, talking to uh, Morris Manning, who was the chairman of the official government committee into it, and I thought he was trying to but he'd be pretty gay to his core. And I thought he was sort of saying poo-pooing it a bit. He wasn't, but I asked him how it was going, what was his overall impression of it, and his answer was along the lines of, um, well, the local communities are very anxious to have an input and to do their own thing. And uh, I took that to mean that he was hoping to get the... Uh, the government are hoping that they wouldn't have to lend themselves to it and it could be done at a parish level. But public opinion has advanced so much that now you have the army going into schools with the flag and reading the proclamation, sending a nice mm. young bright officer to a school. That's going to make one head of an impact, you know. I was, I was actually only hearing about that recently. Um, Pardon? I only heard about something like this recently where they, they hired a flag, they sing the national anthem and they mm. give a big speech oh, about yeah. the proclamation it's a big yeah. thing now oh, yeah. it's a big thing and uh, they have many a good um, sort of uh, event lined up for it yeah yeah well, it'll be interesting to see how um, they pay homage to it anyway as it, as it all unfolds over the next few well if you think now from the time I spoke to Morris and a few months later I think his term was up and he he um, made a report and he made a suggestion which struck me in the vitals anyway he said perhaps we could get sponsors for it yeah that's that's when it's I mean uh, yeah. we can give Coca-Cola the GPO yeah Walt Disney can have Ned Daly's place down <laughs> yeah. there you know. yeah suppose yeah. Jacobs but can the, take the factory but back the people, <laughs> seem, the people seem to have reasserted themselves You've got a much broader, bigger thing. I mean, that's um, ergo the flag and the proclamation and the army. Because they're always very keen to keep the army away from that sort of thing, yeah. you know. So I think that what you're seeing is a bit of the 1916 spirit. And the troubles are a long way back now. I mean, you won't have cautious of people who object to it being celebrated. Yeah. Out here, you'd be very conscious this was once called Kingstown. It's a very unionist element out Absolutely, here. Yeah. Only the other day, I was in a wine shop, and uh, 
the woman behind the counter uh, opined we were talking about the waste of money and banks. And I said, God, yes, and there's going to be a terrible waste of money with all this 1916 business and all the things that are going to go on. So I said, uh, what sort of things? And she kind of realized who she was talking to, and she said, oh, you know yourself, the kind of things. <laughs> I went off, you know. Back backtracked immediately, she, wasn't it? <laughs> and she said that down in the Royal St. George Yacht Club or the Royal Irish Yacht Club. <laughs> You're dead right, Priscilla, would have been the response, you know. <laughs> do you think, just going on with public opinion, do you think the public opinion would support, say, down the road, a, a United Ireland? I think, I, I have no faith in... Uh, People telling her no, the money isn't there, and they don't they don't want the north and all that. I think that's bullshit. I think if it came to it, the people would vote, even though you've seen otherwise indicating prime time. RTE is a very retarding factor in all this, I think. But it, one thing you can be fairly sure of, even though they do the sums in the north and decide which is the better system and so on to vote or not vote, one sure thing they won't vote for the unionists. Yeah. And the Catholics are rising. In all the categories, primary, secondary, tertiary, Catholic or nationalist, as we call them, are way ahead of the unionists. And they've been duffing the census figures up to now, so you didn't know. But ironically, next year, the anniversary of the rising, there's going to be a census return, and we'll see where things stand. And I think you'll find the unionists well under the million, the famous million, and the Catholics as near as damaged to that. And there's only a small group in the middle called statistically others. You know, Chinese laundry, the Chinese takeaway students, that kind of mm. people, multinationals. The birth rate, and the other thing that's happening, it's not only the Catholic birth rate, which is not so big as it was, but uh, it's still bigger than the Protestant one. The other thing is the, the feel of the society they're becoming a very uneasy to unionists, the rising tide, the green tide. And they go to Scottish universities, English universities. <coughs> they don't go to, uh, they don't stay in Ireland, they don't go to Queens. I mean, there's loads of them there. But the student body there is largely Catholic. They run the society things and, you know, you're hearing Irish spoken in the calls. They don't like that, you know. Yeah. Well... I suppose, as we said, it's a topic we could talk about for days and days and weeks and months and years, but we've we've ran out of time um, for now. But look, Tim Pat Coogan, thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, as you said, your, your new book is 1916, The Mornings After. But also, if, if you like what you've heard so far and you want to check out even more, you've wrote extensively on Michael Collins, Eamon de Valera, The Famine, The Troubles... Any portion of Irish history, um, you've, you've had your say on it, and people can check that out. So, look. And by the way, I think yeah. it's very important to mention, uh, not for the purposes of puffy books, but the diaspora, as this is going to iTunes and would probably have a, an international dimension to its audience. I think a thing that's very important, the Irish have been bad about, is keeping the diaspora in their thoughts. We now have a minister of the diaspora, mm. and... 1916 is very important to them because it helped to shape the country which for better or worse denied them a place in Ireland. They are the diaspora and things like the famine in 1916 helped to create the diaspora. It sent them abroad 
And it's very important that they take an interest in their mother country and know what they're supporting. And uh, don't be just pushed around by Dublin politicians who up to now used to say to them, don't support the IRA, do support the IDA, the Industrial Development Association, buy lots of water for glass, Donegal carpets and Irish whiskey, have your holidays here and go, had plenty of money and shut up and go home to America. That day is over. I think the Irish abroad should have, uh, as they have in other parts of Europe, a vote, even though they have to go abroad. We could debate on how that was done. But there should be an involvement of the diaspora. There's over 70 million people of Irish descent in the world. And if even a portion of them took an interest in Ireland, they'd also be taking an interest in the day-to-day -day lives of their brothers and sisters, their mothers and fathers, and their families, and ultimately themselves. So I think that's a very uh, important aspect of, of 1916. It was from America the money came for, and a lot of the guiding hand, Tom Clark, for example, first signature on the, the um, proclamation, came back, a member of the diaspora came back, via jail, via everything, give up his comfortable life. And there's, there's a message in that. And so say all of us, mm -hmm. absolutely. Once again, Tim Pakugan, yeah. thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for your time. Thank you. You're very welcome, you're very welcome. So there you have it. That was Tim Pat Coogan, Irish historian and best-selling author, telling us all about the events leading up to and around Anna after and everything to do with the uh, 1916 Easter Rising. Um, on this, the early 2016, the, the centenary year of the 1916 Rising, there's going to be an awful lot of, of clamouring for rights and fame and we're more connected to Podrick Pierce Newer and all that shit, but... Ultimately, I think it should be looked at independently myself and just looked at, look, that was then, this is now, and let's honour it for what it was. Um, but yeah, look, it was enjoyable, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did recording it. Um, it, it was, as I said, myself and Graham just sat back and really just kind of like, we're like, just keep talking. Like, we, we spent about two hours with him overall, um, and it was something that I think we could have spent just days popping back down to him, getting more and more, because... It was weird. Some bits were so in depth, and then other bits were kind of like shit. We're running out of time, <laughs> like. Um, but the dude just has such a brain on him for this stuff. You can tell he's read extensively and studied extensively on it. Um, great, great historian. But that's it for this week. Um, normal service resume next week. I should have the other two alongside me. But if uh, you missed the sound of their voices, why not check out some of our previous chapters? Um, you can check them out on Stitcher on Podbean, on iTunes, on Podcast Addict, anywhere and anywhere you can get a podcast. Just search WTS Pod and we'll be there. You can check us out on Twitter as well on WTS Pod or if you want to get to know us all on an individual level, start up a special relationship maybe. Graham Single. Um, you can check out at Merrigan Mania on Twitter, on Tinder, on Facebook, on everything and anything. Just Merrigan Mania and you'll find them. Lindsay is at LindsayDoylePT and I'm at Dan Joe Murray. But uh, that's it for this week. Happy New Year to everybody. Thanks very much for all the support in 2015. I hope you and your families all have great, healthy, happy Christmases. Um, let's back to it now, innit? We're all back to work and all that stuff. Jesus, that's depressing. But look, it's 2016. New Year, new you. Lol. Um, so until next week, take it easy. And uh, good night and God bless.